0: If this happens to be your first Sunday with us, we're nearing the end of a sermon series on the lives of these two prophets who loom large in the Old Testament. Their names are Elijah and Elisha. And through the ministry of these two, individual, we, two individuals, we've already seen God's love extended, particularly to the widow, to the orphan, to the poor. And now we get to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, and we meet a guy who really doesn't fit that profile. This guy's got everything going for him. He's got success. He's got power. He's got wealth. Life's been good to him. Everything we're told about this individual makes us think he's a remarkable man. Look with me again at verse 1. First, we learn that He's commander of the army of the king of Syria. In other words, this guy's the top dog. You know, he's at the top of the food chain. He's got more stars on his shoulder than anyone else. And the text goes on to tell us that he's a great man with his master. And if that wasn't enough, he wants to make sure we get the point. He's in high favor too. So in other words, this guy's not only good at what he does, people like him too. They respect him, and he's a winner. I mean, who doesn't love a winner, right? It says that by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. And here's what's interesting to note, Naaman's not a believer. He he hasn't yet put his faith in the Lord, and yet God has blessed him with special leadership abilities and thereby given the Syrians some military success. You know that God's sphere of operation isn't somehow limited to the church. It's not like if you say, oh, I don't believe in God, that your life is somehow off limits from God, that your life is immune. You know, God is Lord over everyone and everything. And and even if we say, oh, I don't believe in God, here's what I want you to know. The, The success that you might have experienced in life and family and career and finances, That's all the Lord's blessing. That's the Lord's doing. We go on to learn about Naaman that this isn't just some like cheese ball that slithered his way to the top of the ranks. This is a guy who got here the hard way. It says that he was a mighty man of valor. He worked his way up and he's got a chest full of ribbons and medals to prove it. This is a guy who has everything going for him, position, status, career, wealth, but there's this one piece of information that lands like a a thud at the end of verse 1, but he was a leper. Underneath the surface, behind all the accoutrements of success, behind the, the nice chariots and clothes and the country club parties, Naaman has a problem. Maybe some of us can relate. I mean, sure, we might show up here to church and we've got on our nice clothes and we might drive over here in our nice car and go to our well-manicured front yards, but we know life's far from perfect. There's problems. Now we don't know if... Naaman's particular affliction was modern-day leprosy or some other skin disease. The Hebrew word here is uh, really quite broad, but here's what we know. There was no cure, there was no remedy, his disease was terminal, and the prognosis was severe enough to elicit much sympathy. And in verses 2 to 3, we see sympathy extended from one of the most unlikely people of all. The passage tells us this. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Don't miss this. this. This whole story hinges on this one little girl, and she's everything that Naaman isn't. If you remember in verse 1, We're introduced to a Syrian. Now in verse two, we meet an Israelite. Naaman is a great man, we're told. She's a little girl. Naaman's this commander. She's a captive servant. She's a slave. Naaman has fame. She remains nameless. He's the one given the orders. She's the one taking the orders. This is quite the contrast. This girl, she's, she's foreign. She's young, she's female, and she's a slave. And you know what that means. She's at the total opposite end of the social hierarchy. And yet, in this great twist of irony, it's like God has a wonderful sense of humor. It's the little girl who's the one that's going to help the mighty general. Because she knows something that he doesn't. You know, I suspect that when we get to heaven, most of us will be there because of the faithful witness of people like this young girl. People who never capture the national spotlight. People who never preach before thousands. But here's what they do. When the opportunity presents itself, they point people to God. They speak up. Don't ever discount your ability to be used by God because you look around and you see, oh, you know, my, 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 uh, my education, my status, my gifts, they aren't what this other person's is. And here's what we, we learn from this. That God isn't looking for people who think they're awesome. God's looking for people who know that he's awesome. That's who God wants to use. And if you have confidence in God's ability to save, then just like he does with this little girl, he can use you. That's the prerequisite for ministry. But you know, if there was anyone who might have been justified in rejoicing over Naaman's predicament, it would have been this young girl. She's a victim of Syrian brutality. We aren't told all the details. We don't know the fate of her parents, but we know enough to lament the trauma that she's already experienced in her short life. I can't even imagine one of my daughters being kidnapped and carted off to a foreign land. But that's exactly what has happened to this young girl. And in spite of this horrific tragedy, she still maintains her faith in God. She believes that God is real and that he's able to save. And she knows that his power flows through the prophet Elisha. And so she mentions this to her mistress. The desperate people are willing to do desperate things. Naaman had undoubtedly visited all the best physicians in Syria. Maybe he even tried some cutting-edge, you know, state-of-the-art medical treatments like essential oils. You know, like maybe some, some lavender, some eucalyptus. Samer, hear that stuff's awesome. Well, in this case, they offered no hope. And upon hearing the news that there was this prophet in Samaria, Naaman's ears perk up and he goes to visit the king. And the king says, yeah, I'm, you know, your health is really important to me. I mean, after all, Naaman's the top general. I mean, his health is a matter of national security. So he decides to green light the mission, and we read this in verse 5. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. You see what's going on here, right? Naaman is trying to solve his problem like any good American. He's put his hope in two things his checkbook, and his contacts, his relational connections, and his money. He's got this letter of introduction from the king of Syria, and he has sufficient funds to ingratiate himself to all the right people. In modern terms, he has 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. That's a lot of bling. And this makes like the 10 changes of clothing seem like a rather odd addition, doesn't it? Like, hey, here, here's a check for $10 million, and, uh, and here's a gift card to Belk. So you can go get some nice slacks and a couple polo shirts. But we know that these weren't off-the-rack clothes. I mean, this is the kind of clothing that the Kardashians would have fawned over. These were expensive, exclusive, handmade garments that would have been fit for nobility, we can be sure that these clothes are something that helped sweeten the pot and grease the wheels. Now, even though the servant girl referred her master to the prophet in Samaria, where would his name go? He pulls up to the palace, doesn't he? People of power are accustomed to dealing with other people of power. And Naaman wants to stay in his comfort zone, so he decides to make this showy visit of state. Perhaps Naaman thought that any prophet worth his salt would be connected to the king's court. But Naaman doesn't receive the welcome that he was hoping for, beginning now in verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Oh, am I a god to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me." Israel's king is distraught. He's sure that this request is nothing more than a pretense to pick a fight, to start a war. He's totally out of touch with what God's doing. And what's interesting is, once again, it's the little Israelite girl that's the one that's the full of confidence and expectation. And on the other hand, we've got this king that's full of dread. He's undone. He doesn't think to refer Naaman to Elisha. See, this, this king, he might be an Israelite by name, but the passage wants to show us that he doesn't have Israel's faith. He's like many in our country who might say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then run around without any real faith in God, trying to live independent of Him. And so what we see is the prophet Elisha has to take the initiative, continuing now in verse 8, "'But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel.'" So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. You can imagine the scene here, right? You think the commander of the Syrian army is rolling into Israelite territory solo? No. This guy has an arm guard. Like, this is the modern day equivalent of a presidential motorcade. We're told that he shows up with chariots and horses, signaling his immense importance. And with all that gold and silver that he's carrying, you think he might have beefed up security a bit? I'm guessing he's, you know, accompanied by a platoon of elite Syrian special forces. And when they get the word to head over to Elisha's house, this very impressive procession departs the palace and begins to weave its way through the dusty streets of Samaria until they get to Elisha's humble abode. Now, if you know anything about the military or foreign relations, you know that customs and courtesies are really important. So, at one point in time, I I was in the military, I was an infantry officer. And when Major General Odierno's helicopter came and landed on the FOB, do you think we sent Private Snuffy out to go greet him? No, that's not the way that worked. The the highest ranking officer there went out. That that was that person's responsibility. And, and, And because the profession of arms has so much in common, these customs and courtesies are extended across nationalities, even to to foreign officers. I can recall being a cadet at at West Point, and even when a a foreign general would show up, the academy didn't say, well, this guy's not in our chain of command, like, forget him. No, the the, the red carpet was still rolled out, and this is kind of the welcome that Naaman would have expected. Yet when Naaman pulls up to Elisha's house, guess what? There's no big welcome. There's no, oh, we're so glad you're here. Oh, what brings you to town? Or would you like to come in for some sweet tea? (laughs) Nothing. Elisha doesn't even come out. He dispatches a servant to go out and to relay this very brief message to the general. Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And guess how Naaman responds? Oh, he's fired up. He's ticked off. Verse 11 tells us, But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Havana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman's incensed. He considers himself a somebody, and he expects others to recognize it. Naaman might as well have said, you know, who does this two-bit, backwoods prophet think that he is sending his lackey out here to talk to me? Doesn't he know who I am? I'm Naaman. When he says... Surely he would come out to me, those two words, to me, they're emphatic in the Hebrew text. Naaman's pride has been insulted. Naaman's also fired up because the prophet's instructions, well, they defy his expectations. Naaman's thinking to himself, this isn't what I had in mind. The general wanted something more dramatic something more appropriate for a man of his social standing. Naaman's thinking Elisha should have come out and made a big fuss about the big entourage, and then he would have done a little razzle-dazzle and waved his wand, and ba-boom, bada-bing, we would have had ourselves the healing. Now, before we climb on our high horse and we judge Naaman, maybe we should take a Quick look in the mirror. How often do we do the same thing? Any anybody else here ever write God's script for him? You know, you know what I'm talking about, where we kind of tell God what he think, what we think he ought to do for us, how he should answer our prayer requests, and, and what happens when God's plan doesn't align with our expectations? What what happens when we pray for the promotion and it goes to someone else? Do we take comfort in God's sovereignty and trust that? or Like Naaman, do we get a little disappointed with God? Do we get a little upset with God? Do we find ourselves thinking that we know better? When God doesn't perform for us the way we think He ought to, See, so here, here's what I think: that just like Naaman, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that we should somehow be the ones dictating to God what He should do for us, how He should help us. Naaman hears the instructions and he just finds this idea of laughing in the, uh, bathing in the Jordan River laughable. And having seen this river for myself in 2012, I I can see why he might have thought it. I mean, check this out. Our Yadkin River looks better than that, doesn't it? I mean, this thing is muddy, it's brown, it's dirty, it's tepid. And Naaman's thinking, "This, this is a silly prescription. This is beneath the dignity of someone of my social stature. And so he heads for home in a huff. And fortunately, Naaman's servants challenge his foolish response. Look with me now at verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? And slowly Naaman begins to come to his senses. He realizes the wisdom that his servants have just imparted, and he taps the brakes. And instead of returning to Damascus, verse 14 tells us, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Naaman experiences a miraculous healing. When he comes up from out of the water, he's a new man, he's a changed man. Not only is Naaman's skin transformed, but his heart has been changed too. We see this as we read on, Elijah returns, or Naaman returns to Elisha to confess his faith. It says, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold. I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Naaman declares that there's no God except the one true God. And his confession is accompanied by these actions that support his newfound faith. This once proud man who said, Surely he'll come out to me. To me? How does he refer to himself now? Did you catch it? Your servant. And if we keep reading, we see that he refers to himself four more times that way. Your servant. He's he's humbled now. He's a changed man. And the prophet Elisha answers Naaman. He says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman needs to learn a lesson, an important lesson, that God's grace doesn't cost us a cent. Our salvation can't be purchased or earned. We can't bring anything to the table. And even though Naaman lived long before us, he has so much in common with your average Self-reliant, self-sufficient, 21st century American. Like, we are Naaman. And, and that's why his conversion experience is so instructive for us. On his journey to experiencing God's grace, he has to work through the same stumbling blocks that trip us up today. When when Naaman shows up in Israel, he wants a healing, but he wants it on his terms. He's poised to come and negotiate. He, he thought he could approach his salvation the same way that one might broker a business deal. The fact that, you know, salvation might necessitate a, a humble submission to God, this hasn't occurred to him yet. Th- this idea that, that his salvation might need to be accomplished on God's terms alone, this is a foreign concept. Naaman has a pride problem. He's thinking, hey, if anybody deserves a healing, it's going to be me. I mean, after all, look at everything that I'm bringing to the table here. And you know what? We can do the same thing today. Just like Naaman showing up with all his silver and gold, we can make the mistake of thinking that one day we can stand before God... And and we'll have all our good deeds. And we think, you know, that ought to do it. When I stand in his presence, I, you know, I'll just tell him, but I, I, I know I'm not perfect. I've made a few mistakes. But I wasn't as bad as her. And, you know, I, I tried really hard to live a good life and, and to follow the golden rule and to eliminate suffering in the world, and so for that reason, I'm thinking that you should grant me eternal life. And basically what we're telling God is we're saying, God, surely you'll be impressed enough with me to let me in. And the problem with that is God's not impressed. Our, our, our pride and our sin are an offense to him, They're a stumbling block to our salvation. See, Jesus didn't come to earth to help us negotiate a better deal with God. Jesus came to save us, to rescue us. And when it comes to our salvation, God wants us to know that there's nothing that we can do for ourselves other than accept his free gift. And and if we think otherwise, if we think to ourselves, oh, you know, my my good deeds are going to be sufficient to justify God's grace, then we have the same pride problem that Naaman had. Basically, what we're saying is we don't need Jesus. We're saying that was nice of Jesus to come and to die on the cross, but he did that for those other people because I'm good. Like, I got this covered. I don't need that. And God says that he opposes the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. You know what grace is, right? Grace is unmerited favor. By definition, then, grace can't be bought, it can't be earned. Because if it was, it's no longer grace, right? So this is why Paul, when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, In verses 8 and 9, he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what? Help me out here. Not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the good news of Jesus Christ in a nutshell right here. You know, one of the main reasons I think Elisha, stayed inside the house when Naaman rolled up with his big entourage. I think he did it so that Naaman would come to understand this. See, so he had Elisha strolled out and surveyed all the silver and gold. I think that Naaman, maybe one day in the back of his mind, might have been tempted to think, well, you know, I got God's grace because, well, you know, it was me. I kind of, you know, I tipped the scales in my favor. And instead, Naaman leaves for home knowing that was not the case. Salvation for Naaman and for us is through the free gift of God. And when we realize that, when we realize that there's nothing that we can do to impress God, and we approach Him out of this posture of of desperate dependence... That's when God is willing to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. That's when He's willing to save us. You know what Naaman's other hang-up was? He, he received that message of how he could be saved, and did he like it? No. God's plan, it was too simple and it was too narrow for Naaman. See, I don't think Naaman would have left incensed if Elijah had come out and said, you know what? I'm going to need you to come back with twice as much money. I think uh, Naaman would have departed and he would have been okay with that. He wouldn't have minded that. He didn't want to be a charity case. He wasn't looking for a handout. In the same way, I think that if I stood up here and I preached, here's how you can be saved. You ready? All you have to do is... you. you you come to church 40 Sundays a year, and I want you to tithe 10%, and uh, I want you to read a chapter a day, and uh, if, uh, if you have your name on a church roll, then you're going to be saved. I think there's people that would find that message more appealing than the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus The, the, this message of salvation by grace, through faith, that, that can be an offense to some people. Because it goes to work on our pride. The simplicity of the gospel, it's a hang-up for those of us struggling with pride. And you know what also what pride people don't like? The narrowness of the gospel. Elisha tells Naaman to go and bathe in the Jordan River. And what does Naaman say? Why does it have to be the Jordan? How come it can't be some other river? Why this river and not another? And isn't that the same objection people have today? Like, why why is Jesus? How come Jesus gets to say he's the only way, the truth, and the life? You know what Naaman does? He decides to let go of his pride and his self-sufficiency, and he humbles himself, and he submits to God's plan. And Naaman learns what Ruth, what Rahab, what Cornelius, and what countless others throughout the centuries have discovered, that God's grace is available for everyone. Rich or poor, black or white, young or old, male or female, Jew or Gentile, God's grace is for everyone, and his grace is going global. God wants to give you his grace. And the way that we experience his grace is by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. It's by saying, Jesus, I confess you as my Lord, and I believe that you came from heaven to earth, and while you were here, you lived the perfect life that I could never live. And on the cross, I believe that you took the penalty for my sin." but I realized it didn't end at the cross. That on the third day, you rose again and you ascended into heaven. In the same way that you went up, you're going to come back down one day. You're going to come for me and you're going to establish your rule and your reign and you're going to make all things new. And when we believe that, that, that is what God uses to cleanse us and to make us new and to give us eternal life. I'm going to invite everyone here just to to bow your head and to close your eyes. God, we know you're at work. You're always at work. We know that You don't like our pride, but we know that You love us, that's why You sent Jesus. You want us to be reconciled to You, and we long for that to happen. God, we also know that You speak through Your Word, and as we've looked at Your Word today, We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. I think for some of us here, we know we need to be more like that little girl. You've given us knowledge that can save people. But we've been shy with it. We've been embarrassed to share it. And we ask now that you would come and that you would empower us by your spirit so that we might go out and, like this girl, we might be a blessing to others. We might be agents of yours that would assist in bringing your salvation to the world. God, I pray for the person here who's in a journey similar to Naaman. Maybe you're here and you haven't put your faith yet And Jesus, you've been resisting that. And you know that now is the the time when you need to set aside your pride and you need to humble yourself and like a little child, freely receive what God would want to give you. And if you want to do that, you can pray a prayer like this. You can say, God... I know I have a leprosy of sorts. I know that my pride, my lust, my envy, my anger makes me unclean. And I thank you for sending Jesus. And I want to receive the cleansing that He offers, the forgiveness of sins that He can bring. And I want to be wrapped in his perfect righteousness. I ask that you would come and do that now. And I want to live for you all of my days. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.